0: Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Romy Redding.
1: And I am Dr. Billy Pivnik.
0: And welcome back to Couched. We're thrilled to welcome two wonderful guests. First, attorney Catherine, also known as Kitty Colbert, co-author of Controlling Women, What We Must Do Now to Save Reproductive Freedom. She's had a distinguished legal career advancing women's rights, including arguing Planned Parenthood v. Casey in the U.S. Supreme Court, a case widely credited with saving Roe v. Wade, Kitty is also co founder of the Center for Reproductive Rights and creator of NPR's Justice Talking. We are also joined by Dr. Katie Gentili, esteemed psychologist, psychoanalyst, and author of Creating Bodies Eating Disorders as Self Destructive Survival. She's also editor of The Business of Being Made The Temporalities of Reproductive Technologies in Psychoanalysis and Culture. Please do go to our website to read more about their many achievements and other published work, www.couchpodcast.org.
1: So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's so great to have you both with us. And welcome to our listeners, both first time and returning. We're so eager to dive into this conversation, which is about issues that are so pressing and topical for many. Kitty, although this may be too much like asking you to sing your greatest hit, if you could get us started by sharing what it was like to argue a case in front of the Supreme Court, let alone a case this momentous. Well, thanks, Billy. It's great to be here, Romy.
2: Nice to see you. I was honored to argue two cases before the Supreme Court. And in both instances, the real heroes were not the lawyers, but the doctors who provided abortions and the clinics who have admirably served women in need of reproductive health services across the country. So it was my honor to represent them. Clearly, when I argued Casey in 1992, we thought that at that time, the court was ready to overturn Roe. So in many ways, and we can talk more about this as we go forward, the conversation before the court was almost irrelevant because what we were aiming for was to be before the court of public opinion and to politically change the scenario should the court eviscerate the rights of Roe. At that time, we had control of the House and the Senate. We needed to elect a president who was pro-choice. So our entire goal was to speed up when the court decided the case and to ensure that Americans understood what was at stake and begin to think politically about how they would restore the rights we thought we were going to lose. Luckily, that didn't happen, but it's happening now. And so the parallels are very, very apt, and we could talk more about what that means for what Americans need to do as a result of this really conservative and highly reactionary court.
0: You know, I was wanting to just make one comment too, is that when I was reading the chapter about arguing Casey, I was very struck by what you articulate in more depth in the book, the strategy around being in the court of public opinion and the expectation that you were not going to win and that that was actually built into the strategy. That rather surprised me and I found it quite impressive. So I just wanted to make a comment. I thought it would make an excellent limited TV series for Netflix or (laughs) something because it had all these twists and turns in the chess match of it all.
2: Right. And of course, it all preceded with the nomination of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, which was a drama in and of Absolutely.
1: Itself. Absolutely. That's another thing coming back now, right? That's yeah. That's Like a loop in time. Yeah. So, Katie, would you like to jump in now and respond to Kitty, maybe from the perspective of your writing about the psychological meanings that we tend to give to this issue?
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm honored to be here and I'm honored to be here with Kitty, if I can call her that. And I mean, I went to the march in 1992 in particular, because it did seem at that time like it was going to be the end of Roe. And I remember that very clearly. So I'm honored also to be here since you were pivotal to that moment and saving it. And unfortunately, we're here now. I mean, I think one of the things that I've tried to look at in my work around this is why the fetus is such a lightning rod for attention. And I know your amazing book that goes into this is called controlling women. And of course that's part of it, right? I mean, controlling the fetus, it's a twofer. You get to control women and reproduction, but there's also something about when looking historically Dobro has written this book about the history of abortion. And in it, she and other sociologists have pointed out that reproductive rights become really a central focus historically when cultures are going through change, when there is something destabilizing the power structure. And gender is often reinscribed, other hierarchies are re-inscribed, but certainly controlling reproduction is reinscribed and controlling women. So I guess I think about the fetus kind of as a fetish object. And your book brings this out too, because if it was really about the health of a baby, we would have funded education. We would have funded postnatal care. We would not be pulling women off medical aid at the most dangerous time, a couple weeks after giving birth, things like that. And there would be so much more care. And I think that's the important thing. It's not being cynical, it's being realistic. So I kind of start there, looking at the fetus as a fetish object. And what is the fetus as a central point of affect for the culture doing for the culture in a defensive way?
2: You know, in some ways, Katie, I would somewhat disagree in terms Mm -hmm. of the fetishism of this, because of course, babies are really loved in our culture. They should be. They are important when families choose to have them. The issue, from my perspective, is not really the concentration on the fetus so much as the lack of concentration on women and women's ability to control their lives. To me, if this is all about making decisions that are important. And it's interesting now because we see, obviously, the Supreme Court has brought this issue back to the forefront. But the culture wars, more generally, Have taken off in a way that I never really expected so quickly. So, we're now looking at battles around abortion, but we're also looking at battles around banning of books and Mm -hmm. sexuality and LGBTQ issues. And I think part of all of this is that there is a really fundamental desire on the part of too many elected officials who are primarily Republican, I will say almost exclusively Republican at being autocratic, at wanting to control not just women, but to control everything, including who can participate in every fundamental aspect of our society. And so I say to people all the time, abortion is important. Uh, But what's really going on here is we're losing the political ability to control ourselves and to live in a democracy and to be able to control a vision for our lives. And If that happens, it's because we are not being fundamentally alarmed enough to stand up and say, it's time to make a difference here and take back our political system from those who so want to undermine our ability to participate.
3: Although I would say, certainly, yes, babies are loved of sorts. Certain babies are loved in our culture, because I think this is where we get to the stratifications of class and race that are really important, because... Many people in our culture have never had the capacity to set their own future, to set their own trajectory. So in that sense, it's an interesting shift, too, that we're feeling. Obviously, women, all women, to a certain extent, and that's what we're talking about, obviously, because without control of reproduction, there's just bodies with uteruses that can reproduce, have no capacity to shape their own future. So that's one thing. But also, again, shaping your future is really a privilege in our culture that most people haven't had in a lot of ways.
2: Well, Um, yeah, Katie, I would absolutely agree. I mean, the reality is the way that the court has interpreted reproductive freedom mm -hmm. has meant that those who are the most disempowered in our society, those who are poor, those who are young, those who live far in rural areas, those who have no health insurance, who are primarily women of color yeah. because they are discriminated against in the healthcare system in such a fundamental way. All of those people have not had the rights that for the most part wealthier white women have enjoyed. And therefore, when we say it's the end of row We're saying it's the end of rope for everyone, but many, many women in our society have been unable to exercise their reproductive choices for many years, pretty much since about the beginning of 2010, when the big onslaught of restrictions started to be passed, which really coincides to when Republicans took over control of most state legislatures and began to pass restrictions on abortion at just huge, you know, an alarming rate. I'll put it that way.
3: Right. Right. And shortly after that, I think of it in terms of, in part, the destabilization of white heteropatriarchy masculinity to a certain extent. We know the election of Barack Obama caused (laughs) a real seismic shift in the Republican capacity to really organize and be impacted by white supremacists And I see that also given that the what, there's like 400 restrictions that come into play between 2011 and 2016 on abortion in all these different states. And I can't help but see that as a reaction. I think of white masculinity as a narcissistic system that when narcissists are threatened, defenses of displacement really come in to save one from humiliation and shame. And this we can talk about because. The imagery that's used by anti-choice people are obviously not an embryo. It's a baby, almost full-formed. It's a white baby. It's a translucent baby. It's always floating alone in a void. It always looks profoundly vulnerable. And the woman is completely excised from the picture. And that goes into what you're saying, Kitty, that women's rights, what's good for the woman or the person, the gestating body, is completely left out. But part of that might be also because of the imagery that is just used constantly by those wanting to get rid of, make abortion illegal and punish the bodies that get them.
2: We made the most fundamental mistake by relying on the courts to protect our rights. Mm. That was the big problem that the pro-choice movement faced and which continues to this day to haunt us because everybody says, oh, they can't do that. Oh, we'll just go to court and get an injunction. Well, the reality is, is we have an ultra-conservative U.S. Supreme Court that is no longer our friend, that will no longer protect us. And whatever the imagery, whatever the message, the biggest problem is we have failed to react politically. We have instead relied upon the preservation of our rights through judicial system. And in my view, that's the fundamental mistake. And our determination to rely on the courts was a big, big mistake. And we now, as a matter of strategy, first have to accept the fact that this court, within a couple of weeks, is going to overrule Roe. What does that mean? It means it's going to give the states the latitude they need to ban abortion. Now, they've already started to do that. But what we're likely to see within the next year is that abortion will be banned in about 21 to 25 states, from Georgia all the way west to Texas, from north around Idaho, south to the Mexican border, through that mountain state region, with only probably Colorado as a safe haven. And that means a lot of really, really disastrous things for the mental health and physical Mm -hmm. health of women. And what it means is women will have to travel hundreds or thousands of miles to obtain safe reproductive health care because the only places they can get it will be in blue states, the West Coast, the East Coast, a few states Mm -hmm. in between. Second, it means that medication abortion, which is the ability to take a couple of pills and self-manage your care, will be available, but only through a black or gray market. And what does that mean? It means that most women will be able to do it that way. They'll be resourceful. They'll find a way to get those pills. They may have to travel to do so, they have to use the internet to do so. But those who have physical problems, for example, they're bleeding too much. They go to a local hospital because they're bleeding too heavily. They risk criminal prosecution for self-managing their care. We saw that in Texas a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. For poor women, for women of color, that's a really serious risk, and that's most likely to increase as more and more states ban abortion. And then let me just say one more thing, which is we're likely to see really, really serious both physical and psychological problems that result from the fact that a whole lot of young people are going to be facing unintended pregnancy and really be desperate for how they decide their future. And that desperation, we learned in the days before Roe, can be extremely damaging to both the physical and the mental health of women. Yeah.
3: And it's stratified, as you pointed out, by race and class, who has access to transportation. And also, I think the New Yorker (laughs) had an essay, of course, with these bystander bills that are also coming in, so that anybody who helps a body that is pregnant, anyone who helps them procure abortion could be up for criminal charges, depending on the state and what they're passing. But these are all so related, which I think you brought up earlier with the book banning, because you're talking about the other thing we absolutely refuse to see as central is the sexuality of children and the idea that children need really good sex ed that is realistic, that is pleasure-based, not punishment-based, And, of course, all the anti-abortion morality is around punishing bodies that can get pregnant for having sex.
0: So, thank you both. I have about 45 thoughts pinging around in my head, so I'm just going to grab one, see what I tug on. You know, I'm appreciating the difference in perspective, because both coming from very different vantage points, different bodies of work, history, literature, etc., Now, first of all, the word fetish, it has a charge in our culture that when you're a psychoanalyst, you just scroll because we speak in very odd language. But if we kind of slide that word aside for even our listeners who aren't in the field of psychoanalysis, the idea of a lightning rod, I think, may be more relatable. And I was thinking about, Kitty, in your book, there's a few places, and this is only one of the emphases, but one that's important that it was a reminder for me, how the Issue got collapsed into this binary of women's rights versus fetus rights. And I think that point that you make does line up with this idea of the fetus as a lightning rod. Just I was wanting to make a bridge there. And then to maybe move into a slightly different direction from that topic, I was thinking about we can theorize about the whys and from a lot of different academic angles and political angles. But the here and now point you just made, Kitty, around there is going to be tremendous fallout coming very soon. So I wonder if we can think about that together. That might just bring us into the here and now and the what can we do.
2: Thanks. You know, I think that from my perspective, we're at the worst point we've been since 1973, probably since 1970, when things began to liberalize in our country but we know a lot from the days when abortion was banned. And what we saw then, and what we're likely to see now, is that the maternal mortality rates increase, that there is more unintended births, and as a result, there's family dysfunction as a result of that. The good news, and it's only slightly good news, but it is good news, is that today, in contrary to the days before Roe, is that abortion is available both surgically and through medication. And the availability of medication abortion that's safe in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy is really important because it means that women can self-manage their care. I don't know if any of you yet have seen the movie The Janes. It's a documentary about the Jane Collective, but it brings back how women founded collectives to help other women obtain surgical abortion, today that can be done underground through medication abortion or getting it legally in the states that will continue to provide it. I think it's important for us to strategize about how we can help the women in need. That's first and foremost the most important thing. And I would say what we need to do is get them good information get them enough resources so that they can travel if that's what they need to do, and get them the emotional and physical support they need for their existing families and for their mental health. Because if you live in Texas, getting to Kansas or getting to California is no easy feat, particularly if you have no money. So finding ways to provide those resources is really key. But the most important thing, in my view, is we got to help women, but we also have to start acting on our principles. We have to vote like this is the only issue that matters. Because the only way we're going to change this circumstance in the big picture is to flip the state legislatures in those 25 states that are now controlled by those who oppose abortion and make sure that there is a filibuster-proof majority in the House and Senate. Now, Those are long battles, but we need to be politically engaged to do so. And there's a lot of states that are in play in November of this year. And so we need to begin to put that army of people to work to make sure those legislatures flip and, of course, take control of gubernatorial seats. All of those are important because they will determine how this issue plays out over the next couple of years.
1: So, I'm wondering if we can broaden the discussion slightly again. Kitty, you were making the point before about autocracy and sort of a general attempt to control people and their thoughts and bodies. And I was just thinking that as a result, a lot of complexity gets lost. And so, there's often pity, people pitting adoption versus abortion, right? Religion versus non-religion, whatever form they take to demonize people. And as an adoptive mother, I've actually thought quite a lot about this. I would not have children had two women not decided to keep babies that they could have aborted. And yet I'm very much in support of women being able to have control over our lives and our bodies. And for me, the way I've kind of put this together is that what I'm for is for people to have the right to make a choice, right? The right to choose. Do they want to keep the baby or not keep the baby? And if they don't want to keep the baby, what do they want to do? And somehow that gets lost in the kind of high emotion, polemic debate that goes on in the culture. Well, you know, legally, Billy, that's where the rights
2: guaranteed in Roe really sit. That is, The right to make decisions that are important about your life, not necessarily about pregnancy, but about contraception, about how you rear your children, the schools you send them to, the custody battles that you might have with a spouse. All of those, what I think of as the panoply of rights that are at issue here, go back to that fundamental decision about do you have the ability to control important aspects of your life? And we're seeing that in a whole range of ways in society right now. It also goes to bodily integrity, obviously, and the adoption question is really raises that pretty importantly, because for some parents who adopt, issues of bodily integrity were not affected, and yet their ability to parent certainly was. So the way I like to think about this is that we all need decisions to decide not just whether to have a child or to terminate a pregnancy but also to be able to raise children in dignity and in safety in all parts of their life going forward. And I'm very, very disturbed with the current Supreme Court. And part of that disturbance is that they don't understand how fundamental the, the ability to decide to become a parent really is, whether you bear that child or not. And I think that's really important that we begin to think about these rights in a much more holistic sense.
1: And in terms of mental health, right? Those are the kinds of things that affect people's mental health. I'm going to go back to the lightning rods
3: are often lightning rods due to unconscious anxiety or anxiety and unconscious defences, And I can't help but see as... The future of humanity is completely up for grabs in terms of climate crisis. I think we have to take very seriously that many people are still motivated by this fantasy of Medea killing all her children, or I, <laughs> I hate to go Oedipal or something, but that, uh, you know, the idea that the mother could kill you. The idea that the planet could kill you, this idea that we are vulnerable, needs to be able to be held without defenses. And I think that's one of the main things that psychoanalysis really needs to work on, is how can people be vulnerable? Because that's what's completely displaced in a lot of these. The fetus holds the vulnerability, this projected vulnerability for everybody. And that allows the hero to come in. The hero is the right-wing anti-choice people who get to be the heroes to protect this vulnerable vulnerable creature. And again, left completely out is the just dating body that is seen only as a potential threat.
2: The one thing I would add here Billy to your original question is the issue of gender roles mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because one of the things that never ceases to amaze me, I mean the women's movement was now 50 years old in this last age, many centuries old. <laughs> We've been trying for a very long time to change the fundamental issue of men being the breadwinners and the strong warriors and women being the child rearers and the stay-at-home providers to family and children and taking care of their men. And while I would like to believe we've made huge inroads, by having women in the workforce and providing opportunities for them to go beyond that original view. The reality is, is as a culture, we are stuck in those gender roles in ways that just never cease to amaze me. I mean, I just read this report the other day that working women, the higher you go in your job, the more likely you are to do more housework than your husband you're caught on both ends because, you know, you're out in the work, you're being an executive and you're expected or you do more housework than your husband. And the greater the disparity there, the higher the woman goes versus the man, the more housework she does. I mean, what's that say about the fragility of the male ego to participate as an equal within the household? And I think that is really at the heart of why this issue is so fundamentally difficult, because the change that's required is not just the political change, the macro change I've been talking about, but a fundamental change in the roles within families. And we're beginning to see a younger generation make some of those changes. Obviously, the LGBTQ movement has really made a big difference, but the reality is is this has taken generations and the harder it becomes to make changes at that fundamental question, the more likely we are to see the backlash by those who feel like they're losing their power, which is obviously white male.
3: Right, which I think is the point, again, vulnerability, the inability to be vulnerable. It's a generational thing to a certain extent that the older generation is clinging to power and the older white male oriented generation, doesn't mean men in particular, but those who are invested in that particular power structure. I just want to remind that staying at home has also been a very racial and economic privilege because the people we're talking about who are most impacted are the people who have always had to work. I think going back to what you were talking about, the underground network is going to have to be very wide because a lot of these states. The scary part is the idea of making people who help bodies that are pregnant get abortions that they can be charged criminally.
2: So that yeah, it's very scary. It's that very is scary. really I scary mean, to me. This is this is really isn't about vulnerability. This is about power, and those people who are threatened are threatened because of a loss of their right. power. Yeah. Vulnerability. May yeah. Be the, I think, yeah, the I think they toggle
0: around each other. They do.
2: The reality yeah. is, is this is about power, political power, power over other members of your family or your peer group, the ability to make decisions that are absolute mm-hmm. and non-nuanced and autocratic in, in many ways. And until we start thinking about the fact that we need to React to this as a question of returning power in a more equitable way, we're always going to lose this debate. And that's why I keep coming back to this notion of acting on our politics. I bet a lot of the listeners in this audience don't even know who their state legislator is. You don't know how your state votes on this question, unless you live in Texas when it's kind of hard to avoid, or maybe Oklahoma. You don't know the power those state legislatures have about all aspects of your life. And so I think it's important for us. Those who oppose us make abortion their number one issue. They vote on it down the line, across the board, always. And the reality is, is if you are voting for pro-choice candidates, you're for the most part voting for people who you agree with on a whole range of things. But we tend to, and I will put the Democrats in writ large, we tend to focus more on the disputes within our side of the debate rather than focusing on flipping and returning to power those seats that we've lost. And it seems to me it's really, really important for us going forward in the next two election cycles to make sure we're talking about how we flip the power from those who disagree with us to those who agree with us, which means taking on the Republicans in a whole range of ways.
3: Yeah, I think that too many people believe that their catastrophes are privatized. It's their fault, which I think is also the abortion debate. It blames the bodies that are pregnant versus any circumstance Mm -hmm. around them, including, as you pointed out, the people who might want to keep their babies but can't for various reasons. Yeah, so I think that that's also part of it. And that blinds us to a lot of the political actions we can take, because that's a more social way of looking at things versus this
1: neoliberal privatization. So we're raising an issue that's kind of a debate right now in psychoanalysis, which is how much do we look at the intrapsychic factors and how much do we look at social factors when we're thinking about what things ail people, you know, what pain they're in? And people have been doing oral histories with women who were giving up their babies for adoption before Roe. And one of the things that somebody said was adoptees are told children born out of wedlock were unwanted, but that's not true. They're unwanted by society, not by their birth mothers. I mean, of course, it's not 100%. This was one person's oral history. But I think we live in a context where our economic system, our neoliberal system is definitely affecting our politics and the kinds of decisions that people can make. And often more than whatever the intrapsychic edible factors might be. And as clinicians, I'm speaking now to the clinician part of our audience, right, we have to keep in mind that sometimes those social factors are even more important than the things that might create depression because of superego and so forth. Right.
0: And I would like to add that I'm taking in one of the strong points that Kitty's making with regard to the concrete need for political action and what is it that occurs psychologically that blinds or blockades mm-hmm. one engaging in that realm? And as Billy pointed out, this is a hot debate in mm-hmm. psychoanalysis. But the fact that it's a hot debate is good news, I think, even if it does get a little binarized and oversimplified. This is something that I want to continue to think about. And I think many of our listeners are thinking about and will continue to think about because there's something, there's still some gap. There's some gap, I think, that we're bumping up against again and again.
2: So let me see if I can put my Mm -hmm. hands on some of that. One big gap is that most people in this country have always lived at a time when abortion was legal. Yes. I'm 70 years old. Abortion became legal when I went to college in New York State in 1970. So anybody younger than me always had legal abortion through their childbearing years. And so the first is a sense of this really can't happen. And when you rely on the courts to enforce your rights, there's disbelief that because people generally think the courts are fair and just and operate under principle. And in our country, started to decisis is kind of embedded in the system. So they just there's a big sense of disbelief. This can't happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now we know that that's not the case, and I think Texas has kind of opened people's eyes. But the reality is, is most people don't pay attention to a loss of their rights until they need them. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that means that the rest of us. Have a big obligation to help people understand what's going on and be how it will affect them in their everyday. Yeah, you're talking. Okay, so that's you're talking one.
0: about denial and dissociation. If we were going to put some like psychoanalytic yeah, lingo yeah. on it, right there it is. Right, and okay. displacement, giving someone else the
2: responsibility for your choices. I've spent the last couple of months actually writing the book and talking about the book and doing a TED talk and Variety just to help people understand what is really at stake, that the Supreme Court is actually going to take away these rights for the first time in your lifetime. And there's things that you can do to make a difference. But the second thing I would say is that even if all of the clinicians of the world are really good at helping people who are affected put their lives back together, we're likely to continue to see it happen over and over and over again until we change the root cause. And in this instance, the root cause really goes to what the law says. You either have a right to have an abortion, or you don't. And that varies from state to state, and that can be changed from state to state, or eventually in Congress for the entire country. So to me, it's not an either-or. I want all of the clinicians to help repair the people who are suffering as a result of these horrible political actions. But I want all of us to say, okay, we're going to do something bigger in the macro sense to change what has caused this in the first instance. And the only way to do that is really, really serious political work. It is making phone calls, writing postcards, donating to campaigns, giving money to abortion funds so that they can help some of those women travel from state to state. It is really fundamentally small but important actions that will make a difference. And all of your audience can do that starting today.
0: Thank you for that. Thank you.
3: I definitely agree in terms of that the action has to happen. But I think we also have to recognize what are the dynamics that are keeping people from acting?
0: I think that what are the dynamics that keep people from acting or believing that the simple actions actually matter? This is a theme that comes up again and again in all of our episodes. People don't believe it. And if you read Kitty's story, you can hopefully catch some faith because it's there. The stories are there. Read the histories. Simple actions add up and things start to happen. It's, I think, very important to read the accounts of these things so that you can actually believe that they happen. And it's true. It's not a made up story. We're almost at time, but I wanted to, if I can pivot a little bit and just read a quote. It's a quote that you use in the book. From I was just about to read it, too. Billy and I were talking about it this morning. (laughs) Justice Anthony M. Kennedy. And is this correct, Kitty? He was the one that surprised you in his vote? That's right. Right. Okay. That's right. So I'm wondering if this quote explains the position he was taking in terms of why he voted in favor of reproductive rights. So let me read it. And I just love to hear people riff on it. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life.
2: The hard part for a Supreme Court justice is to put practical meaning to words like liberty and equality, Mm -hmm. which are kind of the fundamental parts of the 14th Amendment. And justices for a long time have said, well, we've got to go to the language of the Constitution. Well, the reality is the language of the Constitution is inherently vague. It had to be, because it was trying to define a political system for generations, not for 10 days or even 10 years, for generations. And so the language of liberty Uh, which Justice Kennedy does expound upon in a fairly broad and beautiful way, does have differing meanings for different justices. And that's the fundamental problem we are now having, is that there are five justices on the court. I say all the time, you know, winning or losing in the Supreme Court is a lot like Sesame Street, right? You got to learn to count. And there's only one number that matters, and that's five, (laughs) right? Because you got to have a majority of the court, which is five justices. And so the way that the court has defined liberty or equality really boils down to the philosophies of a majority of the court. And our problem today is that the majority of the court has a very, very, what I think of as crimped view of life. They have a very set view about how everyone ought to behave. And the reality is is we're much too broad and diffuse a nation to have one person's view of what's appropriate prevail. So I think part of our notion of how we have to think about liberty is to develop a philosophy that is expansionist enough to absorb All of our vagaries, all of our nuances, all of our viewpoints, and find a compromise that works. And the reality is that compromise was Roe versus Wade. It said, you have a right to choose abortion if it's right for you. Okay. If it's not right for you, don't have one. That's pretty simplistic, political, and legal view, which is it gives the most opportunity to as many people. What we're coming to now is just the opposite, which is if I don't like it, you can't have it. And that to me is fundamentally problematic, not only for this court and for a whole range of issues. Think about birth control, right? If I don't like it, you can't have it. Well, that changed a lot of people's lives if you can't have birth control. But the point is, is we need to come to a point of view that maximizes choices, that maximizes opportunities, that maximizes our view of liberty, rather than letting five individuals impose their moral compass on the rest of us. Thank you. Well, you know, Justice Kennedy is in some ways was the real surprise in Casey. He voted against us on the first vote and then changed his mind a couple of weeks later and joined Justice O'Connor and Justice Souter in the joint opinion, which was a very historic opportunity where three justices came together to write one opinion. But Justice Kennedy was also the hero for the LGBTQ right. community. I mean he wrote he understood gay marriage. He really, as a conservative, this was a man who represented the Catholic Church. But I think as the longer he served on the court, the greater he understood that these issues really go to the heart of existence. And he needs to think about them much more Mm -hmm. broadly. Thank you for that. I just want to say thank you. This has been a very interesting and totally different conversation than I usually participate in. I wanted to tell people that if they want to hear more about the the politics, what they can do, we have a website called controllingwomenthebook.com, which has a bunch of resources available for people to find organizations working on this issue. And obviously, I hope that you pick up a copy of the book It's called Controlling Women, What We Must Do Now to Save Reproductive Freedom, and it's available at bookstores across the country.
3: Thank you. Yeah, and I would agree Get Involved in Underground Networks, because that's the only way we're going to keep people in these states where they're going to have no choices.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess our time is up for today.
0: Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank both of you. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association.